What would you do if a patient you had just injected with dermal filler lost their vision on the table? Yesterday, we did the SkinViver training cadaver lab, and we were privileged enough to study the anatomy and potential rescue techniques to treat a patient in such an extremely rare situation. The question on all of my colleagues' minds was, would you do a retrobulbar hyaluronidase injection in the event of blindness? The stakes are about as high as it gets. And sometimes this may seem to make things more simple because it could seem as if there's nothing to lose. But I believe the situation is much more complex than it first seems. And that's what we'll be discussing today on the Aesthetics Mastery Show. Before I dive in, don't forget to give this video a like if you're enjoying the show. So when is this situation likely to occur? Well, first of all, it's actually incredibly unlikely. So data suggests maybe around one in 300,000 cases, and it's very hard to gather that data, but that still puts it around about 10 times less likely than being in a serious car accident. And we all travel without worrying too much about that. So you don't necessarily have to govern your life around this potential risk, but we do need to think about it in detail so that we can get that risk even lower. So risky procedures occur when injecting near vessels which come off the internal carotid blood supply. So internal carotid, it comes out through the orbit, and then we have connections, the supertrochlea, the superorbital, the lacrimal artery, and of course the angular artery is a direct connection often to the supertrochlear artery. So injections in the forehead, labella, rhinoplasty, and nasolabial fold are particularly high risk. Uh, but also there are implications for other areas of the face. There are cases even of a chin-causing blindness. These are incredibly rare, and the cases are always more complex than the sanitized reports that we see in the literature. So what do we need to know about the situation? Well, most importantly, a retina without blood supply does not last long. Animal studies suggest a maximum of 90 minutes, and then there is no hope of return. Diagnosis should be early in most of these cases because you'd think you would notice if you'd lost your vision. And if there is time to save the retina in severe cases, it's always early on. Like That's really when the action needs to take place. So the question is, with immediate vision loss, would you do the risky procedure of a retrobulbar hyaluronidase injection? The idea is that getting hyaluronidase as close as possible to the ophthalmic and retinal arteries is your best chance of restoring vision. But we'll examining that thought process as we go through this video. So what does the actual procedure involve? If you're doing a retrobulbar injection, the goal is simple. We really need to get hyaluronidase as close as possible to the ophthalmic and retinal arteries. The most common technique suggested comes from anesthesia. So when you're anesthetizing the eye before doing a cataract injection or other types of ophthalmic surgery, this is one way of doing that. So of course we want to get the product as close as possible to those structures that are potentially blocked, but we're trying to avoid as many of the other structures as possible because obviously you're injecting the eye and this is a very risky place to put a needle. So let me give you a brief description of the technique. So we're trying to place hyaluronidase behind the eye because we believe that's the most efficient way to dissolve any potential blockage, but we're trying to do that while not injuring the globe or the nerve or the blood vessels around the eye. So the technique involves, first of all, compressing the eye and shifting the globe higher up in the orbit to create more potential space inferiorly so that you can pass the needle. Some of the descriptions involve angling in for the first two millimeters at just 120 degrees until you hear a popping through the orbital membrane. 
At this point, you can rotate the needle until it is 90 degrees to the facial plane before inserting another 12 to 15 millimeters. At a depth of around 12 to 15 millimeters, the needle tip is deep enough so that the eye is curving rapidly away from the needle point. And at this point, the angle can be changed to 120 degrees. So you're resting the base of the needle on the orbit, and then you slide in a further 15 millimeters to make it about 30 millimeters in total. And at this point, you should be behind the eye in that important area where, we're, where the vessels are. Uh, but not too deep, because if you go too deep, you're obviously going to be sticking the needle into the uh, blood vessels or into the optic nerve, which will cause additional trauma. You can then inject up to three mils in volume. So this is comes from the idea that the globe is an enclosed space. And if you inject more than around 10 to 15% of the volume of the globe, you can compress those structures, which is also one of the reasons why hematoma is such a critical injury if you were to cause that in this process. So the question is, what would we need to know to recommend that the average practitioner perform a retrobulbar hyaluronidase injection in the event of an emergency? First of all, we need to know the risks of the procedure itself. So of the rescue procedure, there are many potential risks. We also need to know what the likely benefits of that procedure is. Is there any evidence to say that this is likely to make the situation better? We'd also need to compare that to the risk of not treating. So do we know what happens when you don't treat someone in this situation compared with the ones when we do? And the risk in relation to other potential rescue procedures, for example, the peribulbar block is often recommended too, but though for some reason less often than the retrobulbar injection. So what are the risks of retrobulbar injection? First of all, you have injury to the globe. Simply piercing the globe has a potential serious side effect of the procedure has a risk of about 1 in 12,000. Retrobulbar hemorrhage, quite a lot higher at 1.7%. Optic nerve damage, extraocular muscle injury, so just basically injuring one of those muscles that move the eye, which can be a serious side effect too. And then central spread of local anesthetic if you were to mix your hyalase with lidocaine, which I've never seen recommended. There's another thing to consider, which is the reality of this procedure is that in some of the studies studying the anesthetic effect of these injections is that only 50% of cases in one study were actually in the intraconal space. And this just says in the hands of even trained people, it isn't actually that good at getting it where you want it to go. So this is also affecting my confidence in recommending the procedure. So the situation in day-to-day -day practice is really different. There are many things that can cause diagnostic uncertainty even in the case of something that you would think is quite black and white, such as visual disturbance or visual loss. I'm aware of a case, for example, where a patient who just had a botulinum toxin procedure, very concerned about visual loss, essentially had a panic attack, called an ambulance, thought she'd lost her vision after the procedure and went straight to the eye hospital. Of course, there was nothing wrong with her vision, but this, is, this can happen. Some patients who are aware of this can become extremely anxious about it, which is a reason not to treat them beforehand. But this happens uh, and it can confuse the clinician, particularly if you're both worried about it. You can end up in a situation where you're treating panic instead of actual visual loss. The next complexity is partial disturbances. So a lot of the literature, we do obviously think very carefully about people who've lost their vision. But there are many cases of partial disturbances and many of those recover with minimal intervention or no intervention at all uh, or very late intervention. So this makes it harder to know whether the intervention is actually responsible for the recovery. Aside from the psychological reasons why diagnosis can be difficult, there are also 
variances in the degree of injury to the eye. So there are partial disturbances where only a small section of the visual field is affected. And then there are transient disturbances where it's a temporary loss in vision that might be, for example, related to a spasm of a vessel rather than actual occlusion. You can also have pre-existing visual problems that cause complexity. So what do you do with a patient with who's already partially sighted or maybe has an undiagnosed problem with their vision? And if you screen them after the procedure but not before the procedure, you may make a diagnosis that is actually inappropriate. You're diagnosing that it has just happened where in fact it's years old. Of course, the next very important factor is let's re be real about what the situation is like. Most clinicians are relatively inexperienced at treating people with sudden onset blindness and this is extremely high stress. Now this will distort people's ability to make clear decisions and it is quite possible, in fact I've seen it many times with treating vascular occlusions, that the naive clinician is actually over eager to treat and the more experienced clinician may play things more slowly and play them by ear and over-treatment is a very big risk medically legally, uh, just as under-treatment can be, but often it's, it's more often people trying too hard that can cause issues rather than complete negligence. Let's also consider the alternatives to the retrobulbar block, which could be something like the technique used for a peribulbar block. So the peribulbar block is a far less deep injection. You're only advancing the needle up until roughly about the equator of the globe, maybe slightly beyond with none of that rotation trying to get into that posterior space. And this means it'll be less chance of injuring the optic nerve and catching any of those vessels that could cause a retrobulbar hematoma, which is particularly um, serious and a medical emergency in itself. So simpler injection, and there's another thing I quite like about it, which is that it is closer to the vessels superiorly that are likely to be involved in the occlusion. So supertrochlear artery, supraorbital artery, and potentially the lacrimal artery, are all obviously superior and if you're injecting peribulbar style then you will be superior on one of your injections and this is less likely to cause an injury and potentially able to affect those vessels. I'm also suggesting that the the nature of what we're injecting makes a very big difference into how far it can get and if there's evidence which there is that lidocaine can spread outside of the conal space or into the conal space even when not injected there then I think hyalurondase is very likely to do the same thing and this might be a less risky way of getting some benefit. So what's my take home? I'm certainly not recommending that every patient who has visual disturbance after a dermal filler needs a retrobulbar injection of hyalurondase. There just isn't the evidence to back that it's actually helpful, and there's certainly some concern that it could make things a lot worse. What's important to remember is that this is not black and white. I certainly, like many clinicians, am guilty of thinking, well, there's nothing to lose by trying. But I've actually changed my tune on that because what I realize is the complexity of the situation means you simply don't know at the point of diagnosis whether this is fleeting, uh, whether it's partial, whether it's a panicking patient. And also we don't know what the benefit of the procedure is likely to be. There are different levels of diagnostic certainty which would increase or decrease my certainty in terms of doing a risky procedure to rescue them. And that is one of the important parts of the equation. I think every injecting clinician should understand some of the suggested rescue protocols for blindness, maybe learn some of those techniques at cadaver courses, get some practice, and then carefully think about what they would do in that real situation. It is not something that we can put into a protocol and say, let's all do this when this thing happens, because there is so much uncertainty, so much unknown data about it. So 
understand them and in the event of the situation if you do face it it may become clearer to you what the right thing is to do in that moment what's probably more important to put your efforts into rather than deciding what you would do in that worst case scenario is thinking about all the different ways that you can reduce the risk of causing that situation i think it's important to separate the frequency of vascular occlusion from the severity of vascular occlusion in your injection strategy. I think a lot of the safety protocols and the safe injection techniques focus on reducing the frequency of VO, but we must also reduce the size of those VOs when they happen. So injecting less, smaller amounts per injection point, aspirating in between aliquots is also potentially a way that you could reduce the size of a vascular occlusion. Injecting slowly, I'm not a fan of the five minute rhinoplasty, this should be done slowly and carefully with multiple different stages uh, if you really want to reduce the risk of a severe vascular occlusion. I would much rather, in fact I don't lose sleep over a superficial vascular occlusion in the skin, it's the deeper ones, these intracranial blockages like you get with blindness that are a complete nightmare. So, so that is a lot about how much you're injecting. In fact one useful idea that you might use to decide how to inject is the total volume of the supertrochlear artery, which is probably the one most likely to be involved in a vascular occlusion, is 0.085 mils on average. Obviously, there's a spectrum. And that gives you an idea of how much you'd need to inject at a minimum to block that artery and reach back to the ophthalmic and then potentially block the retinal artery. So we could inject just less than that and check in between each injection. And perhaps that is one extra way of re reducing the size of ever needing to use a retrobulbar or a peribulbar hyaluronidase injection. So what do you think? It's still a complex situation, but if you had diagnostic certainty, would you be confident enough to do a peribulbar or a retrobulbar block? style injection with hyaluronidase let us know in the comments down below i hope you found that useful and thought-provoking don't forget to like this video if you have and of course subscribe to the channel so you don't miss future episodes mm -hmm.